Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Jennifer Palmer, who covers education for Oklahoma Watch, has been following another effect of House Bill 1775, this related to students' access to books. Jennifer, I didn't think House Bill 1775 addressed books. What's going on? Well, it's kind of a, a, a tangent issue here, um, but you're right, 1775 is focused on curriculum and teaching certain concepts related to race and sex in the classroom. And what we're seeing now is um, students losing access to some novels and other books in the classroom um, as a result of this. So you, you wrote that Norman has been the latest community facing a controversy over books. What happened there? That's right. Last week, I mentioned that a high school English teacher there um, has uh, her district, uh, Norman Public Schools, implemented a policy at the start of the school year in response to 1775. And she was pulled from the classroom and ended up resigning over that policy. She had covered her bookshelf with um, paper and directed students to um, a, uh, she gave them a QR code that directed them to the Brooklyn Public Library, which offers some banned books. And so how does that relate to House Bill 1775? There's no accusation or anything that the books directly conflicted with the bill or the law here in Oklahoma. Um, it was really just a parent who complained about one of the books in particular on that banned book list that students could access through the QR code, which I should note is widely available, not, not just from this particular teacher, but I mean, it's online. Students can find it very easily. So the book at the center of the parents' complaint is called Gender Queer, a Memoir. Uh, didn't you read the book? What did you think? I did read the book. There, you know, to be frank, there are some illustrations in the book of sex acts, and that has been what parents and politicians have really um, seized upon. But I read the entire book, which, you know, it's so, so easy to take those pictures out of context. But when you read the entire book, you get more of a full picture of the value of the book for young people. You know, to me, it really represented a, a growing up experience that was very different from what I experienced and what I think a lot of people experience. Um, but I value that. I think that, you know, reading a book like that to take you kind of outside of yourself to empathize with other people and what they're going through, I, I think that can be a positive thing. Now, Secretary of Education Ryan Walters has been outspoken uh, about the teacher who drew that complaint. What has he had to say? 
Ryan Walters came out on social media after that incident um, and posted a letter that he sent to the State Board of Education demanding that her uh, teaching credentials be revoked. He, in the, the letter, claimed that she provided access to banned and pornographic material. That, that's a quote from his letter. And he, the post that he made um, says that sexualizing our classrooms will not be tolerated. How accurate uh, of a description is that? I mean, first and foremost, this book is not pornography. It is an award-winning young adult novel. And a judge in Virginia just last week found that it didn't meet the standards for obscenity. Um, So, you know, and, and part of that letter, too, that educators really seized upon was that when he wrote, there's no place for a liberal political agenda in classrooms, kind of leaving the door open, as some have pointed out, for a conservative political agenda in the classroom. Have there been any repercussions for the teacher? You know, she has been targeted now by um, threats and um, messages um, calling her all kinds of things, uh, including very obscene comments. Um, and she actually had to call the police. She had to leave her home based on these threats and this this doxing that has happened to her online after, um, after that letter went out. Now, could she uh, lose her teaching certificate? Is that realistic? I don't know. Um, you know, the State Board of Education did, you know, weigh in on the side of um, revo- or, um, punishing Tulsa and Mustang after those complaints. I will have to see. I mean, normally revoking a teacher's certificate is a very serious thing. And they do it, you know, regularly for teachers who are accused of things that are, you know, actual child abuse and grooming type, you know, predatory behaviors, there is no evidence that this teacher did any of that. Um, So uh, we'll have to see. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read all of Jennifer's education coverage at OklahomaWatch.org, where you can also subscribe to her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. Ashlyn Huffman covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. She's been looking into Republican lawmakers and their support for Richard Glossop, an inmate on death row, and the possibility of ending capital punishment in Oklahoma. Ashlyn, tell us who Richard Glossop is and why lawmakers are getting involved in his case. Richard Glossop is, like you said, an inmate on death row. He was convicted in a 1997 slaying of his boss, Barry Van Treese. He was actually charged with murder for hire, not actual murder. Um, So Justin Sneed, a man who worked with him, actually did the killing and told law enforcement that the idea came from Richard Glossop. So Richard has been on death row for 25 years, and he just received his fifth execution date. 
Now, lawmakers have shown a lot of support for him over the last three to five years because Representative Kevin McDougal um, believes that Richard Glossop is innocent. Now, uh, Representative McDougal has been uh, pretty vocal about his quest to end capital punishment if Glossop is executed. Does he have enough political clout to do that? Um. He can always introduce legislation. I spoke with a couple of people from the legislator's office, uh, Senator Murdoch, Senator Duggar, and they both said that they would vote against any repeal legislation. So nothing stopping Representative McDougal from introducing legislation, but he did say he knows it would be a battle. Now, McDougal has always said he's in favor of capital punishment. So did did Richard Glossop's case change his stance on that? Not at all. He said he is still very pro-capital punishment. Um, he described himself as a conservative conservative Christian, um, very much still pro-capital punishment. He was very adamant about that. However, he does believe that if we have someone on death row in Oklahoma, we need to make sure that they actually are guilty. He doesn't want any room for error, um, anyone who could possibly be innocent. So, no, Richard Glossop did not change his stance. And that's the other thing is Representative McDougal will not introduce repeal legislation unless Richard Glossop is executed. He's going to introduce some kind of legislation to make the process easier, I guess. But he is not going to introduce repeal legislation unless he is executed. Now, to abolish the death penalty, what would that take? Is that solely up to legislators? Um, no. So back in 2016, state question 776, um, it codified the constitution and allowed Oklahoma to pursue capital punishment. So Oklahomans voted for that. And in order to abolish the death penalty, it would have to go back to the vote of the people. Now, uh, in your reporting, you said that, uh, McDougal would face opposition if he introduced, uh, any kind of legislation to repeal the death penalty. Uh, you mentioned a minute ago that you talked to a couple legislators who, who said they'd vote against it. Uh, and of course the last time the, the public was polled on this, there were some two thirds of Oklahomans said they were in favor of the death penalty. So, um, when you say he would face opposition, what part of that are you talking about? So obviously he would face opposition within the House and the Senate, but he also has that extra step of if it does pass through the House of Representatives and the Senate, Governor Stitt or whoever is governor at the time would have to sign off on it, and there's no guarantee. So I spoke with Senator Duggar, and he said he would be surprised if repeal legislation would pass in Oklahoma. And the answer he gave for that was, well, we're a conservative state and we are pro-death penalty. However, I did speak to a um, guy who opposes the death penalty, and he said that with the voting age coming up, people who are coming of voting age are actually in opposition of the death penalty. So it's possible we could repeal it, but it wouldn't be anytime soon. So you attended uh, some anti-capital punishment events. What did you learn from those? So I was pleasantly surprised that there was a lot of people there who were more conservative than I expected. Since it is a death penalty event, I assumed that a lot of the people there would be more liberal versus conservative. But 
after speaking to a few people, um, those who are conservative have some very valid concerns about the death penalty, such as it's very costly on the state of Oklahoma. It's not really a deterrent to crime. And a few people also said it does not align with the pro-life message of conservatives. So that was very interesting. I never like to go into things with a predetermined idea of what is going to happen at the event, but I was pleasantly surprised to see a completely different side. All right. Well, thanks, Ashland. You can read Ashland's soon-to-be-published story on what she learned about the possibilities of repealing the death penalty and Representative McDougal's stance at our website, oklahomawatch.org. Keaton Ross covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. In his latest story, he examined why most state legislative races have already been decided months before the November general election. Keaton, how many state House and Senate seats are uncontested this year? Yeah, so looking at the 101 House seats and half of the Senate seats that go up for election every four years, so 24 of those, um, 125 combined, there are 87 that have already been decided either during the filing period in April or during single-party primaries in June or the runoff in August. So about two-thirds, it sounds like. A little over two-thirds, yeah. yeah. How, how does that compare to previous elections, say 2020 and 2018? Yeah, so in 2020, it was about 60% of races were decided at this point between the August runoff and the general election. Um, you know, there was some some reporting done back then that a lot of that party leaders and political folks saw that as covid had an impact on that. Uh, The filing period was during kind of the height of the pandemic in April 2020. And so that was a theory as to why maybe there wasn't as much interest and people signing up to run. Um, And then you go back four years to the last midterm, there were only about a quarter of races were um, not on the November ballot. So it's really been a dramatic shift over the past two to four years. So, you know, tell us why that matters. What what can happen in a community when local races are not competitive? Yeah, so in my story, I really zero in on House District 62 in West Lawton, um, you know, a really diverse community um, at one point showed signs of being pretty purple as far as how it was voting in presidential elections and governor elections and now is uncontested. And you look back four years ago, it had the closest House race um, throughout the state. Uh, The winner won, Republican Daniel Pei won by 42 votes. And during that election cycle, you saw forums where they were appearing next to each other, taking questions, uh, engaging voters, knocking on doors, just a lot of outreach and interest. And when you don't have that competitive race, you know, there's not the door knocking, um, just not as much outreach to voters maybe, um, which in turn can uh, maybe lead to some some apathy, that sort of thing. Of the two major parties, which one has struggled to field candidates? So that would be the Democratic Party. Um, we've seen with the Republican Party that um, there's been mostly um, throughout the state, of, there are some urban districts in Oklahoma City and Tulsa where they're not fielding a, a candidate, but They've really maintained their presence throughout the state, whereas the Democratic Party has struggled uh, significantly to field candidates in more rural areas and suburban areas where four years ago there were um, 
a good amount of candidates. So what's changed over the past four years? Why are there so few Democrats deciding to run? Uh, so it's important to note that in 2018, there was the statewide teacher walkout that was happening around the filing period. So you saw a lot of political interest and kind of dissatisfaction with uh, the status quo and how lawmakers were uh, dealing with that issue of teacher pay. So that influenced a lot of people to sign up and run. And since then, there's kind of just been, seems, waning interest in uh, making a run for state politics. Um, maybe some people worn out from from COVID and kind of the pressures that that put on, you know, personal life and uh, professional life. And so kind of those two things coming together. What kind of effort uh, goes into running in those races? Can somebody do that and keep a full-time job? Uh, you know, it's pretty pretty difficult. Um, you know, you're you're knocking on doors, you're working on sending out flyers, um, you're kind of strategizing. You know, a house race, there's maybe 30, 36,000 or so people in a house district. Um, so, you know, not not as big as say a congressional district where there's half a million people, but um, you know, it's still a fair amount of work to try to get your message out. And, you know, that also requires money paying for all, all of that. So, um, you know, if you don't have built up savings to take time off of work or fund that um, it can be difficult to get those funds and, and financially support a, a campaign. Well, how often does dark money find its way into state legislative races? You know, it, it happens a fair amount, probably not on the same scale as you'd see in a, a statewide um, race or a congressional Senate race, but uh, certainly can still influence um, these races, particularly where there's two candidates and it, it looks like it could swing either way. Now, did the Democrats, have they talked about any kind of a strategy to get more people to run? Yeah, so I talked to a few folks and candidates, uh, Democrats, kind of a, about how they see a path forward. Um, you know, we're under new redistricting maps that the Republicans created and that some said that puts them at a disadvantage, but that's kind of the reality for the next decade. And kind of looking at the path forward, um, you know, I talked to some folks that mentioned the statewide ballot initiatives where voters supported legalizing medical marijuana, um, those those sorts of questions. There was some support in rural areas, not all rural areas, but some pockets, and they're hoping that that can be kind of a guide to where um, they can go out and try to get their message out and field candidates and chip away at, at uh, the Republican supermajority. All right, well, thanks, Keaton. You can uh, read Keaton's story about the lack of competitiveness and legislative races at oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, you can also subscribe to Keaton's weekly Democracy Watch newsletter. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.
Oklahoma Watch is a nonpartisan, nonprofit news organization. That means that we rely on readers and listeners like you to help fund the important work that Oklahoma Watch does throughout the state. We're in the middle of our spring fundraising campaign. If you enjoy the work we do, if you feel as though you benefit from it and the state of Oklahoma benefits from what we do, please take a moment to visit our website and make any contribution that you're comfortable with, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever's comfortable for you will help keep this important work going. Visit our donations page at oklahomawatch.org.